Part One of The Bridge Builders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Addison. The Bridge Builders by Rudyard Kipling. The least that Findlayson of the Public Works Department expected was a CIE. He dreamed of a CSI. Indeed, his friends had told him that he deserved more. For three years he had endured heat and cold, disappointment, discomfort, danger and disease, with responsibility almost too top-heavy for one pair of shoulders and day by day through that time the great Kashi bridge over the Ganges had grown under his charge. Now, in less than three months, if all went well, His Excellency the Viceroy would open the bridge in state, an archbishop would bless it, and the first trainload of soldiers would come over it, and there would be speeches. Findlayson, C.E., sat in his trolley on a construction line that ran along one of the main revetments, the huge stone-faced banks that flared away north and south for three miles on either side of the river, and permitted himself to think of the end. With its approaches, his work was one mile and three-quarters in length. A lattice girder bridge, trust with the Findlayson truss, standing on seven and twenty brick piers. Each one of those piers was twenty-four feet in diameter, capped with red agra stone, and sunk eighty feet below the shifting sand of the Ganges bed. Above them was a railway line fifteen feet broad. Above that again, a cart-road of eighteen feet, flanked with footpaths. At either end rose towers of red brick, loopholed for musketry, and pierced for big guns, and the ramp of the road was being pushed forward to their haunches. The raw earth-ends were crawling and alive, with hundreds upon hundreds of tiny asses, climbing out of the yawning borrow-pit below with sackfuls of stuff, and the hot afternoon air was filled with the noise of hooves, the rattle of the driver's sticks, and the swish and roll-down of the dirt. The river was very low, and on the dazzling white sand between the three centre piers stood squat cribs of railway sleepers, filled within and daubed without with mud, to support the last of the girders as those were riveted up. In the little deep water, left by the drought, an overhead crane travelled to and fro along its spile-pier, jerking sections of iron into place, snorting and backing and grunting as an elephant grunts in the timber-yard. Riveters by the hundred swarmed about the lattice sidework, 
and the iron roof of the railway line hung from invisible staging under the bellies of the girders, clustered round the throats of the peers, and rode on the overhang of the footpath stanchions. Their fire-pots and the spurts of flame that answered each hammer-stroke, showing no more than pale yellow in the sun's glare. East and west and north and south, the construction trains rattled and shrieked up and down the embankments, the piled trucks of brown and white stone banging behind them, till the sideboards were unpinned, and with a roar and a grumble, a few thousand tons more material were flung out to hold the river in place. Findlayson C.E. turned on his trolley and looked over the face of the country that he had changed for seven miles around, looked back on the humming village of five thousand workmen, upstream and down, along the vista of spurs and sand, across the river to the far piers, lessening in the haze, overhead to the guard-towers, and only he knew how strong those were, and with a sigh of contentment saw that his work was good. There stood his bridge before him in the sunlight, lacking only a few weeks' work on the girders of the three middle piers, his bridge, raw and ugly as original sin, but pucker, permanent, to endure when all memory of the builder, yea, even of the splendid Findlayson truss, has perished. Practically, the thing was done. Hitchcock, his assistant, cantered along the line on a little switch-tailed Kabuli pony, who, through long practice, could have trotted securely over trestle, and nodded to his chief. All but, said he with a smile, I've been thinking about it, the senior answered. Not half a bad job for two men, is it? One and a half. Gad, what a Cooper's Hill cub I was when I came on the works. Hitchcock felt very old in the crowded experiences of the past three years that had taught him power and responsibility. You were rather a colt, said Findlayson. I wonder how you like going back to office work when this job's over. I shall hate it, said the young man, and as he went on his eye followed Findlayson's, and he muttered, Isn't it damned good? I think we'll go up the service together, Findlayson said to himself. You're too good a youngster to waste on another man. Cub thou wast, assistant thou art, personal assistant, and at similar thou shalt be, if any credit comes to me out of the business. Indeed, the burden of the work had fallen altogether on Findlayson and his assistant, the young man whom he had chosen because of his rawness to break to his own needs. There were labour contractors by the half-hundred, fitters and riveters, European, borrowed from the railway workshops, with, perhaps, twenty white and half-caste subordinates to direct, under direction, the bevies of workmen, 
but none knew better than these two who trusted each other how the underlings were not to be trusted they had been tried many times in sudden crises by slipping of booms by breaking of tackle failure of cranes and the wrath of the river but no stress had brought to light any man among men whom findlayson and hitchcock would have honoured by working as remorselessly as they worked themselves findlayson thought it over from the beginning the months of office work destroyed at a blow when the government of india at the last moment added two feet to the width of the bridge under the impression that bridges were cut out of paper and so brought to ruin at least half an acre of calculations and hitchcock new to disappointment buried his head in his arms and wept the heart-breaking delays over the filling of the contracts in england the futile correspondences hinting at great wealth of commissions if one only one rather doubtful consignment were passed the war that followed the refusal the careful polite obstruction at the other end that followed the war till young hitchcock putting one month's leave to another month and borrowing ten days from findlayson spent his poor little savings of a year in a wild dash to london and there as his own tongue asserted and the later consignments proved put the fear of god into a man so great that he feared only parliament and said so till hitchcock wrought with him across his own dinner-table and he feared the cashy bridge and all who spoke in its name then there was the cholera that came in the night to the village by the bridge-works and after the cholera smoked the smallpox the fever they had always with them hitchcock had been appointed a magistrate of the third class with whipping powers for the better government of the community and findlayson watched him wield his powers temperately learning what to overlook and what to look after it was a long long reverie and it covered storm sudden freshets death in every manner and shape violent and awful rage against red tape half frenzying a mind that knows it should be busy on other things drought sanitation finance birth wedding burial and riot in the village of twenty warring castes argument expostulation persuasion and the blank despair that a man goes to bed upon thankful that his rifle is all in pieces in the gun-case behind everything rose the black frame of the cashy bridge plate by plate girder by girder span by span and each peer of it recalled hitchcock the all-round man who had stood by his chief without failing from the very first to this last so the bridge was two men's work unless one counted peru as peru certainly counted himself he was a lascar a carver from bulsar familiar with every port between rockhampton and london who had risen to the rank of serang on the british india boats 
but wearying of routine musters and clean clothes, had thrown up the service and gone inland, where men of his calibre were sure of employment. For his knowledge of tackle and the handling of heavy weights, Peru was worth almost any price he might have chosen to put upon his services. But custom decreed the wage of the overhead men, and Peru was not within many silver pieces of his proper value. Neither running water nor extreme heights made him afraid, and as an ex-serang he knew how to hold authority. No piece of iron was so big or so badly placed that Peru could not devise a tackle to lift it, a loose-ended, sagging arrangement, rigged with a scandalous amount of talking, but perfectly equal to the work in hand. It was Peru who had saved the girder of number seven beer from destruction when the new wire rope jammed in the eye of the crane, and the huge plate tilted in its slings, threatening to slide out sideways. Then the native workmen lost their heads with great shoutings, and Hitchcock's right arm was broken by a falling tea-plate, and he buttoned it up in his coat and swooned, and came to, and directed for four hours, till Peru from the top of the crane reported, All's well! And the plate swung home. There was no one like Peru Sarang to lash and guy and hold, to control the donkey engines, to hoist a Fordham locomotive craftily out of the burrow pit into which it had tumbled, to strip and dive if need be, to see how the concrete blocks round the piers stood the scouring of Mother Gunja, or to adventure upstream on a monsoon night and report on the state of the embankment facings. He would interrupt the field councils of Findlayson and Hitchcock without fear, till his wonderful English, or his still more wonderful lingua franca, half Portuguese and half Malay, ran out, and he was forced to take string and show the knots that he would recommend. He controlled his own gang of tacklemen. Mysterious relatives from Kutchmandvi gathered month by month and tried to the uttermost. No consideration of family or kin allowed Peru to keep weak hands or a giddy head on the payroll. "'My honour is the honour of this bridge,' he would say to the about-to-be-dismissed. "'What do I care for your honour? Go and work on a steamer, that is all you are fit for.' The little cluster of huts where he and his gang lived, centred round the tattered dwelling of a sea-priest, one who had never set foot on black water, but had been chosen as ghostly counsellor by two generations of sea-rovers, all unaffected by port missions, or those creeds which are thrust upon sailors by agencies along Thames Bank. The priest of the Lascars had nothing to do with their caste, or indeed with anything at all. He ate the offerings of his church, and slept and smoked and slept again. For, said Peru, who had hailed him a thousand miles inland, he is a very holy man. He never cares what you eat, so long as you do not eat beef, and that is good, 
because on land we worship Sheba, we Kavaz, but at sea, on the Kumpani's boats, we attend strictly to the orders of the Bora Malum, the first mate, and on this bridge we observe what Finlinson Sahib says. Finlinson Sahib had that day given orders to clear the scaffolding from the guard tower on the right bank, and Peru, with his mates, was casting loose and lowering down the bamboo poles and planks as swiftly as ever they had whipped the cargo out of a coaster. From his trolley he could hear the whistle of the serang's silver pipe and the creak and clatter of the pulleys. Peru was standing on the topmost coping of the tower, clad in the blue dungaree of his abandoned service, and as Fenderson motioned to him to be careful, for his was no light to throw away, he gripped the last pole, and, shading his eyes ship-fashion, answered with the long-drawn wail of the forecastle lookout, Ham dikta hai! I am looking out. Findlayson laughed, and then sighed. It was years since he had seen a steamer, and he was sick for home. As his trolley passed under the turf, Peru descended by a rope ape-fashion, and cried, It looks well now, Sa'ib. Our bridge is all but done. What think you Mother Gunja will say when the rail runs over? She has said little so far. It was never Mother Gunja that delayed us. There is always time for her, and none the less there has been delay. Has the Sahib forgotten last autumn's flood, when the stone boats were sunk without warning, or only a half-day's warning? Yes, but nothing save a big flood could hurt us now. The spurs are holding well on the west bank. Mother Gunja eats great allowances. There is always room for more stone on the revetments. I tell this to the Chota Sahib, he meant Hitchcock, and he laughed. No matter, Peru. Another year thou wilt be able to build a bridge in thine own fashion. The Lascar grinned. Then it will not be in this way, with stonework sunk under water, as the Kieta was sunk. I like sus suspension bridges that fly from bank to bank with one big step like a gangplank. Then no water can hurt. When does the Lord Sa'ib come to open the bridge? In three months, when the weather is cooler. Ho, ho! He is like the Bura Malum. He sleeps below while the work is being done. Then he comes upon the quarter-deck and touches with his finger and says, This is not clean. Damn Jibunwala! But the Lord Sa'ib does not call me a damn jibun walla peru no sahib but he does not come on deck till the work is all finished even the boramalum of the nerbuda said once a tutikoran bah go i am busy i also said peru with an unshaken countenance may i take the light dinghy now and row along the spurs to hold them with thy hands, they are, I think, sufficiently heavy. Nay, Sa'ib, it is thus. At sea, on the black water, 
we have room to be blown up and down without care here we have no room at all look you we have put the river into a dock and a runner between stone sills findlayson smiled at the wee we have bitted and bridled her she is not like the sea that can beat against a soft beach she is mother gunja in irons his voice fell a little paru thou hast been up and down the world more even than i speak true talk now how much dost thou in thy heart believe of mother gunja all that our priest says london is london sahib sydney is sydney and port darwin is port darwin also mother gunja is mother gunja and when i come back to her banks i know this and worship in london i did puja to the big temple by the river for the sake of the god within yes i will not take the cushions in the dinghy findlayson mounted his horse and trotted to the shed of a bungalow that he shared with his assistant the place had become home to him in the last three years he had grilled in the heat sweated in the rains and shivered with fever under the rude thatch roof the lime wash beside the door was covered with rough drawings and formulae and the sentry path trodden in the matting of the veranda showed where he had walked alone there is no eight-hour limit to an engineer's work and the evening meal with hitchcock was eaten booted and spurred over their cigars they listened to the hum of the village as the gangs came up from the river-bed and the lights began to twinkle perro has gone up the spurs in your dinghy he's taken a couple of nephews with him and is lolling in the stern like a commodore said hitchcock that's all right he's got something on his mind you'd think that ten years in the british india boats would have knocked most of his religion out of him so it has said hitchcock chuckling i overheard him the other day in the middle of a most atheistical talk with that fat old guru of theirs peru denied the efficacy of prayer and wanted the guru to go to sea and watch a gale out with him and see if he could stop a monsoon all the same if you carried off his guru he'd leave us like a shot he was yarning away to me about praying to the dome of st paul's when he was in london he told me that the first time he went into the engine-room of a steamer when he was a boy he prayed to the low-pressure cylinder not half a bad thing to pray to either he's propitiating his own gods now and he wants to know what mother gunja will think of a bridge being run across her who's there a shadow darkened the doorway and a telegram was put into hitchcock's hand she ought to be pretty well used to it by this time only a tart it ought to be raleigh's answer about the new rivets great heavens hitchcock jumped to his feet what is it said the senior and took the form that's what mother gunja thinks is it he said reading keep cool young un. we've got all our work cut out for us let's see muir wired half an hour ago floods on the rangunja look out well that gives us one two nine and a half for the flood to reach melipur gant and seven sixteen and a half to latiole say fifteen hours before it comes down to us 
curse that hill-fed sewer of a rangunja of oh, findlayson this is two months before anything could have been expected and the left bank is littered up with stuff still two full months before the time that's why it comes i've only known indian rivers for five-and-twenty years and i don't pretend to understand here comes another turf findlayson opened the telegram cochran this time from the ganges canal heavy rains here bad he might have saved the last word well we don't want to know any more we've got to work the gangs all night and clean up the river bed you'll take the east bank and work out to meet me in the middle get everything that floats below the bridge we shall have quite enough river craft coming down the drift anyhow without letting the stone boats round the piers what have you got on the east bank that needs looking after pontoon one big pontoon with the overhead crane on it a tether overhead crane on the mended pontoon with the cart road rivets from twenty to twenty-three piers two construction lines and a turning spurt the pile work must take its chance said hitchcock all right roll up everything you can lay hands on we'll give the gang fifteen minutes more to eat their grub End of part one